So the video we just watched was the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 17 through 47. And it shows Jesus' reaction to the accusation thrown to, at him by the religious leaders of his day. The title of today's message is, Jesus is, and there's a little bit of a fill in the blank there. It's asking the question of who Jesus it really is and who Jesus says he is. So Jesus is being accused here, and the accusation generally boils down to, who are you, Jesus, to break our religious tradition? Who are you to go against 1,500 years of solidified religious practice? Who are you to tell us the religious elite, the Pharisees, the educated people of our time, the leaders of the church, that we have been doing it all wrong? Who are you to say that to us? And Jesus spends the rest of John chapter 5, as we just saw in that video, telling them exactly who he is and what he is doing here and why he has come. So let's open in prayer as we begin to study God's word this morning. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the tools that we have today to study your word, including videos like this one that we can look at and we can see and understand a little bit better of where you are getting to in your word and what you are speaking about. And I ask, Father, you just use these kind of tools to answer that question that was posed at the beginning of the service of saying who Jesus is. Not only in a general sense, but specifically for everyone here. Jesus is who to us all. Father, I thank you and I ask this in your name. Amen. So Jesus begins his defense by establishing who he is in regard and in comparison to God, the Father that the Pharisees claim to know. And Jesus starts with explaining his relationship to the Father. In verse 17, he says, In his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am also working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that's the first point of what Jesus is trying to say here this morning, is that Jesus is one with the Father. In John 10.30, he says it again. He says, I and the Father are one. And I illustrate this by just asking you a question. Have you ever sat back and, and watched new peop or watched people around a new baby? You know, you have a relative or a friend whose baby is born and you go and visit, and after all the ooing and the eyeing and the baby cock and, and holding the little baby up and blowing the little um, bubbles on his stomach. You ever see that a on this baby's stomach and see if you can get the baby to giggle a little bit? You know, the baby gets passed around, goes back to mom, and then the comparisons start, right? Somebody will say, well, it looks like they have their father's eyes or, or it looks like they have their mother's mouth. And as they get older and older and they start going into those terrible twos and, and all those bad behaviors, the grandparents will tell the parents, yep, that's just like you were when you were at that age. 
Remember what I used to say when you were a teenager, I hope your kid's just like you? Well, your kid's just like you right now, acting just like you did back when you were a child. But what is usually said in frustration about our own kids, in Jesus' case, it's very true in the positive way. Hebrews 1.3 says that the sun is the radiance of, the, of God's glory and is the exact, the exact representation of his being. People that say that they don't love, or that they love Jesus, but they don't like God, miss the entire point of the Bible. I don't know if you have heard that. People in, in our modern days say, I kind of like Jesus. I kind of like what he teaches. I like him. He's about peace. He's about loving one another. But then you talk about that God in the Old Testament, that he's like killing people and telling people to have slaves and, and, bring, and keeping women down and, and doing all this evil kind of stuff. But Jesus I kind of like, but God, I don't, I'm not quite too sure about him. Well, they miss the point of the entire Bible. That the entire Bible is history, but it is his story. It is the story of Jesus. That Jesus is God, and God is Jesus. They are exactly the same being and the same person. And we have no other way and no other thing on this earth that matches the oneness that Jesus has with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's just something that we take on faith. But it is also why that Jesus conforms with the Father. In verse 19, he says, Very truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works in these, so that you will all be amazed. Several years ago, I was having a talk with somebody at work who was raising several children and how to influence their behavior. And, and she was telling me that one of her sons got caught using his school laptop to look at very bad internet sites, some rated X stuff. And now she had grounded him, and now she was disappointed in him because they thought she thought they had taught him better than that. And I knew a little bit about this couple. I mean, their their relationship was fairly um, open knowledge of where I worked at the time. And him, her, and her husband had an open relationship, and that means that they could go see other people and still be married to each other. And so I asked her. I said, "Do you have? Do you or your husband?" have any pornography in the house. I mean, you're, you're getting on your son about pornography. Do you have any in the house? Even if you think it's hidden. Because I'll tell you what, there's no way you can hide that in the house. Sooner or later, a kid's going to go through your bedroom and find it. Do you have any pornography in the house? And she kind of looked down and she, you know, she started to kind of to backtrack and all that. I said, I don't even know, need to know the answer. I said, what I can tell you, though, is that 80 to 90% of what children learn from their parents is caught. It's not taught. You can teach a, per, a kid one thing, but if they don't see it being played out in front of them, they're going to go to an even lower level than where you are right now because they are catching a different message. And that's what's happening with your son right now. I mean, people think we are clever. People think we can hide our sins. But the Bible said that your sin will find you out. 
And you cannot hide, what you cannot hide, you might be able to hide physical evidence, you might be able to hide the videotapes, you might be able to hide the drugs, you might be able to hide the cigarettes, you might be able to hide whatever that, that thing that has a hold of you, but what you cannot hide is the spirit that you bring with it. And that spirit infects your household. And that spirit will go after your children. That spirit will go after your spouse. That, that spirit will go after your loved ones also because you have invited it in to your house. Now think about that, though, from the opposite with the perspective of Jesus. We can't wrap our brain, human brains around the relationship that exists between within the Trinity, our, our, our imperfect human language cannot adequately describe what the perfect is. But in Jesus' case, prior to this event in the Bible, Jesus has never, ever seen God the Father lie. Jesus has never, ever seen the Father God say, do as I say and not as I do. Anybody hear that as a child? I did all the time. Jesus has never been disappointed in the action of the Father. Jesus is so conformed with who God is. He's like one of those puzzles that we had growing up. I don't know if, if you had these kind of puzzles, but it would be opening a book and you'd have two pictures that at first glance look exactly alike. And the puzzle was that there were very minor things within the pictures that were different. You would have to find them and circle them. And the challenge was to find all of them, those little minor differences within them. And, but in the case of Jesus, if you had a picture of Jesus and you were able to have a picture of Father God, they would be exactly alike, right down to the, how much ink is in that picture. They would be exactly alike. And that is how Jesus was able to live that perfect life because he conformed perfectly to God's image. And Jesus lived in the exactness of God's plan because Jesus communicated with the Father. Jesus said, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not only to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus' oneness with the Father allowed him to flow perfectly in God's will. Since they had spent eternity past with one another, Jesus was able to know God's heart and his plan for any situation that came up in his life. Let me illustrate this a little bit. Tammy and I have been together for 27 years and married for 25 of them in October. If I'm out and about around supper time, running around doing errands, and Tammy messages me and says, you know, I forgot to take something out for supper. Can you just pick some, up some food? And I text back. I said, okay, honey, what do you want? She, and almost all the time will say, ah, you know what I like, just get me something. Now, that can be a good thing and a bad thing for a husband. That, that, that is kind of fraught with danger. But if you know your spouse well enough, you can, you can usually get by on this. But one thing I do know is that Tammy hates mushrooms. Absolutely hates mushrooms on anything. She thinks they're gross. She'll make them for me. She loves me. She'll, she'll make them for me. But she hates any mushrooms on anything. So if I bring her home a mushroom Swiss burger, which I love. I love mushroom Swiss burgers. My favorite hamburger probably or a pizza covered in mushrooms, she's going to be upset because after all this time, she should, I should remember that she hates mushrooms. And that's just one little fact I know about my wife. Now imagine if God gave us 10,000 years together 
to get to know each other. Now imagine if God gave us eternity past into eternity future to know each other. How much little details do you think we would get to know about each other? But this is exactly the kind of closeness that Jesus had with his Father. But yet, he still separated himself to spend time with God. He had that constant communication with God the Father because he chose to separate himself from everyone else to get himself alone and spend quality time with God. Jesus existed constantly in that manifold presence of God. And that's how people were able to be healed just by touching him, by reaching out and touching the hem of his garment. You remember when Jesus was transfigured? Remember Jesus, James, John, they go up on a mountain and then Jesus starts to glow and, and Peter and James and John are just amazed and Peter said, oh, let me build a church right here for, for each one of you. And, you know, it's just we'll, we'll have a place of worship right here. And because Jesus was just amazingly and glowing and everything else. I don't think Jesus started to glow. I think God pulled the blindness away from the eyes of the disciple. And they got to see Jesus for who he really was because he was so close to God the Father. That he was the exact radiance of the Father's being. And because Jesus was one with the Father, he conforms to the Father, and he exists in this perfect communication with the Father, Jesus is able to say with all confidence that this Bible is his story. We alluded to that a little bit earlier. Jesus says in verse 19, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus is referring back to the entire biblical history right up until now. He's saying that everything you saw God do in the Old Testament was pointing right to him. It was God using this history to point straight to Jesus. I mean, if you think just about the first five books of the Bible, when he was saying that Moses was going to accuse you, he is talking directly about the first five books of the Bible and how they point to Jesus. Consider the Proto-Evangelium. That's your big theological word for the day. That's the point where God is speaking that Eve's descendant will crush the serpent's head, found in Genesis chapter 3. It's the first mention of the evangelistic nature of the Bible and the evangelistic nature of God's history. That's why it's called Proto-Evangelium. Jesus is Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is the example of what Jesus does for us. He saves us from the wrath of God. And not a single thing will be harmed when God's wrath finally has to come on this earth if we enclose ourselves in the ark that Jesus is for us. Jesus is the one that stopped Abraham's hand when he was ready to kill Isaac. Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac is a beautiful foreshadowing of what God would someday do with Jesus. Except in that case, the knife fell in the form of the cross when Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is the one who wrestled with Jacob, who was known as Deceiver. And God changed his name at that point to Israel, which means God wins every battle. 
Jesus was a dream giver to Joseph. Jesus called Moses from the burning bush. Jesus destroyed Egypt with ten plagues and then drowned their army in the Red Sea. Jesus led them for 40 years as a pillar of flame during the night and a pillar of cloud by day. During that time, Jesus instituted the Levitical form of worship to point us right to him. And later, in the later chapters of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, everything in there points to Jesus. <coughs> All the sacrifices that are done, they somehow will point you to Jesus. The prescribed, exacting manner of worship points you to man's utter inability to, to do anything to please God and, the, and that we need a Savior. The construction of the tabernacle, the way it was made, the, the, the fabrics, the animal skins, everything that had to do with that tabernacle points you to Jesus. All 613 laws given to Israel point you back to Jesus somehow. After they get out of that wilderness, Jesus appears to Joshua as a commander of heaven's armies. He's the one worshipped by David in the Psalms. He's the one called wisdom by Solomon. He's the one that's proclaimed by the prophets. He's the one hope for Israel. He's the one that was born of Mary, worshipped by Simeon in the temple. He walked on water. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. And he died between two thieves to save us for our sins. This entire book is about Jesus. It's his story. And his story is continuing to be lived out in our lives today, in the lives of those who would believe in him and the ones that yearn for his quick return. I want to see Jesus come back, amen? Every time you pick up this book, your prayer should be, God, let me see Jesus in its words. Let me see you better as I read Illuminate my heart to worship Jesus through his revealed word. Use it to correct me, encourage me, and focus me so that the very words of life will nourish me for this day. Jesus is his word. But if you need more proof of who Jesus is, Jesus tells you to believe in what others have said. Jesus provides three witnesses in John chapter 5 here. Three, two to three witnesses were the Jewish minimum for establishing the truth in a matter. He said, let everything be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the first one he calls is Moses. is the one that really hits him between the eyes. Jesus says in verse 45, Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hope is sent. If you believe Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus said that Moses would judge them. He's not only talking about Moses the man, but he's talking about all the law that Moses gave, all the ceremony, all the sacrifices, all the intricate details found in the construction of the tabernacle. They all point to Jesus. And note, I said tabernacle and not temple. A lot of us focus on the temple of God, the big stone building that was in Jerusalem, but God never really told them to ever build that temple. He wanted them in a tabernacle. And let me show you why. It's a slight detour, but I thought it was an important one this morning. The book of Acts poses a very interesting question for us. Book of Heaven, uh, Acts says, in Acts 7.48 says, Heaven is my stone and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or will, where will my 
resting place be? Recently, I read about a tour you can take throughout Europe, and you'll visit all the huge cathedral churches that mankind has built, especially during the Middle Ages. And these, the creator of these cathedrals had it in their heart to show people the awesomeness of God through building huge stone buildings for him. However, Israel was never commanded to build a stone temple to God. Actually, it was the opposite. The, God said, never use cut stones to build an altar to me. The tabernacle that he commanded to be made was made out of animal skins. In other words, the tabernacle was made of flesh. The idea for a temple came out of David's guilt because his palace was so luxurious, and then he looked at this tent that God was being worshipped in, and he got guilty about it and told them that they should make a, te uh, a temple, a big stone temple to God, but God never really wanted it. He never commanded for it to be built. The reason is because the whole purpose of Old Testament history was to point us to Jesus. And if you're going to surround someone in stone, that actually points more to death than it does life, doesn't it? I mean, what do we put dead bodies in? Put them in a crypt in the ground. We put them in mausoleums. We surround them with stone. But our God is alive, and that's why he wanted a tabernacle made of flesh to remind us about that. And the tabernacle is meant to point us to this very incredibly important truth. And this is vital to understand salvation history in the Bible. The human heart has always been the tabernacle that God has desired to dwell inside. He is not impressed by a building. He is not impressed by these cathedrals. He's not impressed by this building we stand in here today. What he wants and what he eagerly desires in this entire book is about is him coming to live inside each one of our hearts. Adam and Eve or destroyed that tabernacle when they rebelled against God. But Jesus restored it through his suffering and death for our sins and now resurrection for those who will believe in him and trust in him and follow him. And the entire law of Moses is supposed to show us that. That this is what Jesus is referring to when he said that Moses would be the judge of those who prefer a dead form of religion instead of a vital relationship with God coming to live within the tabernacle he has always desired. The second witness that Jesus calls is John the baptizer. He said, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Now John the baptizer, when you read his story in the Gospels, he's unequivocal when it came to what his mission was and who he was proclaiming. John knew that he was simply a herald. A herald was just a messenger sent in front of a, of, a, of a person of fame that would announce his arrival. That was John's mission. It wasn't to call people to himself. It wasn't to form a new religion. It wasn't to make himself famous. He was simply proclaiming the fame of someone who was coming next. John said, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way for the Lord. John said he was so insignificant that he was not even worthy to touch the feet of the one coming next. John's testimony about Jesus show how great Jesus is. The third thing Jesus calls to testify 
about who He is are the miracles that He did. The miracles of Jesus show us exactly who Jesus is claiming to be. Now, a miracle is a supernatural intervention that could not have happened without God's power. And Jesus is God. And because He is God, Jesus has the divine attributes and qualities that make you a God. The miracles perform the three things required to be formed God. The first thing they do is that Jesus shows he has the divine attribute of omniscience. That means that he is all-knowing. Jesus frequently in the scriptures and in the gospels tells people things that they could not have he could not have possibly known if he was human. He tells the woman at the well everything she's ever done. He tells Nathaniel that he saw him under a fig tree, even though he wasn't anywhere near that at the time. He is able to tell Jairus that his daughter has been healed, even though he had no idea what was going on with that. He's always able to, for, to foretell what is going on around him, and he's also able to foretell the future. He speaks as a direct eyewitness even of the past, centuries-old things. He said he knew Abraham. Things that were impossible for him to know unless he was God. His miracles also show that Jesus has a divine attribute of omnipresence, which means he is everywhere at once. And this omnipresence, this everywhere at once and omniscience, all-knowing, they go hand in hand. When Jesus receives news that his friend Lazarus is ill, he knows the exact time or place. He knows that he won't be able to get there on time. But he knows because he's already there in his spirit of exactly what is going on. And because Jesus is God, because he has this, this, this attribute of omnipresence, he's able to know the exact number of atoms inside a clam in the South Pacific Ocean on the other side of the planet. He knows the exact temperature of every star, even ones that we don't even know about yet. He even is able to see what we'd rather not have him see and hope that he isn't looking when we're doing things that we're not supposed to do. What this means for us is that he's able to know and see your every struggle. He's able to know and hear and be present for your every prayer. He's able to know and be present and dry your every tear. And he's able to know and be present to strengthen you in your every weakness. That is what Jesus' miracles tells us about him. And while Jesus calls to our attention, or why Jesus calls our attention to them to prove that he is who he says he is. Jesus also has the third divine attribute, attribute which is omnipotence, which means that he is all-powerful. Now most people will acknowledge that in order to be God, you have to be all-powerful. You have to have a great amount of ability that is, supersedes anything on this planet. But what does that mean for you and me living day to day? Oswald Chambers said this about the omnipotence and all-powerfulness of God. Oswald Chambers said, when obedience is in the ascendant, in other words, when you are living a life that wants to be pleasing to God, it says that he said that God will tax the remotest star and the last grain of sand to assist you in his mighty power. Now those are very high words and, and, and somewhat difficult for us to really pull all the meaning out of them. 
But I want you to consider for a moment about how God used his power for people who loved him. You remember that he clothed a physically and now spiritually naked Adam and Eve with an animal that he just created. You have to remember, he just created this animal. And now he kills this animal and uses it to clothe two of his wayward children. God stopped the earth's rotation to enable Joshua to win a battle. He made the, the sun stop in the sky, is how the Bible describes it. The only way that could happen is to stop the earth's rotation. He reversed, later on in the Bible, the earth's rotation to encourage Hezekiah to make his shadow walk backward up a stairs. Now just, just think about that from a scientific aspect. The earth spins at a thousand miles an hour. And God just reached down and said, and stopped it. Not only did he stop just the physical planet, the rock that we live on, but he had to stop the wind. The wind should have hit us at a thousand miles an hour and turned us into chunky salsa. But God was able to make all of that stop right there to encourage one person on the planet. Not only that, the Earth spinning at a proper spin affects every other planet in this solar system. If the Earth stopped, the other planets would go out of whack. So he put the entire solar system at risk to encourage one person. That is what is meant by taxing the remotest star. God did that for one person, and he's willing to do it for you. That's a power that's available to you and me. That's who Jesus is to each one of us. The title of this message this morning was Jesus Is, and that's a blank. And in John chapter 5, Jesus answers that question when he says, I am God. I am the Father that you have been worshiping. I am the one that you have been seeking. I am the way of life. And that makes him worthy of your worship. Amen?